Welcome to Hallel Fellowship, found on the internet at hallel.info. That's H-A-L-L-E-L dot I-N-F-O. We hope you are encouraged by the following recorded Bible study to look deeper into every word that proceeds from the mouth of God and how they were lived out in the life of Yeshua HaMashiach, often called Jesus the Christ. Today we're going over the sections called Vayera, and this uh, Vayera section covers Genesis chapter 18 through Genesis 22, and Vayera means, and he appeared, or you might say it in the more vernacular, and he showed up, and uh, he showed up big time in all kinds of different situations that you see in this particular passage. So as we looked in both that passage there in Genesis, but uh, also in the passages, you saw the, the parallel passage in Second Kings 4, then uh, Luke 17, talking about days of Noah, days of Lot, and then also in Romans chapter 1 and 2. Now, Romans chapter 1 and 2 is where we're going to be focusing our effort here today. But just in a tad bit of a recap of this particular passage, Andy appeared, because you keep seeing this picture of Andy appeared in the fullness of time. And you'll see that Andy appeared at the, at the appointed time and that they, she would have a son at the appointed time. So you'd see that this promised one, Yitzhak, that this trust in God's promise that he that God would keep Abraham and Yitzhak alive long enough to actually make this promise happen. So Abraham would be alive long enough to have Yitzhak, and Yitzhak would be alive long enough to have kids and then keep this going on and on. Then you see this Abraham's lunch that he has there with these visitors. And that's going to be a long discussion and something we've tackled in other times past. And you can see that if you go to that halal.info slash P4, all of the various uh, studies we've done in the three visitors there and who are the three visitors, what are they doing. But just suffice it to say that the Lord showed up there, showed up to Avraham's doorstep and then showed up into Saddam. So one of the lessons that we would have in this interaction that Avraham was having with the Lord is that the Lord doesn't send judgment and without knowing what is actually going on. As we kind of um, jocularly talk about the smite button, but the mercy button is more, and you see that in the discussion that Avraham was having. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what? Wantonly? No. Judge justly. Act righteously. So then you also see that in Avraham's prayer, you could say prayer pleading, he pleaded with the Lord for Saddam, Gomorrah, basically the Saddam metropolitan area there of that valley. He was praying for mercy and deliverance for the righteous that were among the others in that city. 
among those that were bringing down the justice upon those cities, he was praying for mercy upon the cities because of the righteous that were in the cities. So one of the things you also see about the deliverance of Lot amid this judgment that was coming on Saddam, Gomorrah, and the surrounding cities there of the plain was that sometimes (laughs) we are saved because of the prayers of others. You see that uh, the Apostle Paul makes that point when he's talking about for a family. That's maybe the family and the children are, are saved, preserved, given mercy, favor because of the prayers of others in the family. Yeah, praise God indeed. <laughs> so, and we see that in chapter 22 of Genesis where it's talking about Avraham's offering of his only son and that son of promise and then the appearance of it. You know, you'll hear it's talked about Jehovah Jireh, or you know, as it is in Hebrew, is uh, Yahweh Yirah. Now, Yirah, and we've talked about this when we're talking about the fear of the Lord. That's kind of a very interesting uh, play on words in Hebrew because Yirah is, as it's rendered there, um, you know, the Yod, Resh, and the Aleph, it is saying it's the future tense of to see that you will be seen or grammatically more he will be seen so he the lord he will be seen that's where you get that name for the lord yahweh Yira. and then that talks about then the place of the lord he will be seen but also <laughs> the same spelling of in hebrew gets you fear that is, when it talks about fear, that is the way it's spelled. So that's where you get this interesting um, lesson that comes down through time, is that the fear of the Lord is that the Lord sees you. He will see you. And he will show up when he sees what's going on. So that's what the, the, when it talks about the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, the beginning of wisdom. That's where that source comes from. The Lord sees what's going on, and he will act. So don't think that the Lord doesn't see what's going on, which is actually one of the subtexts that's actually behind this story, and most of the Bible actually is on that uh, various angle. And also in chapter 22, it would be remiss not to note, and we've talked about this in previous studies, about the shadows of the Mashiach that are in this particular chapter, a lot of them the shadows of the coming Messiah, and specifically that you'd have that Yeshua being the only Son of God, talked about there in John chapter 1, verses 14 and 18, that Yeshua is the Lamb of God in John chapter 1 and also in Revelation chapter 5, and that he is the Lamb, as it talks about in Revelation thirteen eight, that he was the Lamb that was slain from the foundation of the world, or the foundation of the earth. So, from the beginning, before the beginning, he was slain, which in our temporal mindedness, and even in grammar, that sounds very strange. How can someone, the one who was slain at some later point in time, be slain at the beginning of time? That, that it, we just... It makes no sense to us, except that we are dealing with the creator of heaven and earth who set this in motion from the very beginning. Before the beginning, this was in place. So before the beginning, to the one who created everything, 
created time and everything that before the beginning would be the same as in the middle and then at the end. And just lastly, um, in this whole theme of Vayera, that the Lord not only shows up when our, we have our time of need, but that, that the Lord also paid the ultimate price. And the, he gave his son, his only son, while we were still sinners, while we were still in the midst of our throes of coming to it. Because as we've talked about with this, yes, Avraham is the man of faith, as it's talked about in Genesis 15, that one of the things, the hallmarks of Avraham is that he trusted the Lord about this prophecy of the son and that he would be a great nation through the son. And it was credited to him as righteousness. And you'll see that over and over and over and over again, both in the Gospels and in the other apostolic writings, that that is a hallmark. And um, even you have that um, talked about in the Gospels, where it's like, hey, your lineage, and Paul gets at it in the passage we just read in Romans 1-2, is that your lineage is not as important as your devotion to what the lineage comes with we talked about legacy 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 well what is the legacy of Avraham the legacy of Israel the Torah and the Mashiach and that's what we're going to get at a lot in Romans 1 and 2 the legacy of God is the Torah which is the revelation the testimony of who the Lord is and what is the testimony as we seen when in Hebrews chapter 1 when we go through that it is the Mashiach is the direct representation of God so the one who reveals it fully and then we see like in the new covenant prophecy there in Jeremiah 31 that everyone will know the Lord and we see that fulfilled with the Mashiach coming. All right, so now, the, the dive. We're, we're, we're diving into the deep end of the pool here because in these days, this is, uh, this Romans chapter 1 is toxic to today's culture. Absolutely toxic. But what we see here is that the, the smoke, really, of Sodom's destruction started rising long before the Lord actually rained fire upon it. So what we can see kind of going back and in, in what we've seen in our previous Torah portions, both in Barashit, which is Genesis 1 through 5, and then Noah, which is Genesis 6 through 11, both of those two set things up and show us, especially in the first one, that humanity was deceived. And Apostle Paul talks about, you know, Eve was deceived and Adam sinned. Well, humanity, collectively, was deceived there at the tree of the knowledge of good and bad. So we've looked at it, and there was the idea that, hey, which one was at the center of the garden? In Genesis 2, it reveals the tree of life was at the center of the garden. Eve, talking with the serpent, puts the tree of knowledge at the center of the garden. And then you see what follows there is that proclamation of that which is desirable. Desire, 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 desire. So humanity desired the tree of knowledge of good and bad to be in the center, not the tree of life to be at the center. So 
that desire overcame trust. Trust the one who set all things in motion that the reason why the tree of life was at the center of the garden and why that was to be the focus was because the creator wants you to look to life. And if you want the knowledge of good and bad, trust the one who made everything to reveal what is good, what is bad. And as we see that every time we get around to the book of Vayikra or Leviticus, we see that one of the big lessons is there is you'll see it again and again. They teach you to distinguish the clean and the unclean, or as it most most um, specifically says via Hebrew, is that which is fit to approach the presence of the Lord and that which is not fit to approach the presence of the Lord. To distinguish between the two things, the things that are headed towards the Lord's presence and the things that are kept away from the Lord's presence. And one of the things that's revealed throughout the Torah is the desire to draw more and more and more toward the presence of the Lord. We saw that with our just little dipping our toe, so to speak, on the eighth day um, when we were going through a little bit of that the, the temple passage in Ezekiel 40 through 48. So those chapters at the end of the book talk about this new temple, and the Lowe's last two chapters talk about the living waters flowing out from the temple into the world. That is the picture, that that is what the big tent, the big temple idea is. So that's why when you see the dimensions of the temple, it is gigantic. This, the dimensions of the city of God are huge. And they, they, they take up a gigantic amount of real estate. Because that is the picture that that is what the intent of the kingdom of God is. Not to shrink, 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 shrink down so then you have to have the secret handshake to get in the door. No, this is to expand it outward so that the glory of God flows out and the living water of God flows out into all the ends of the earth. And as we saw there in the latter chapters of Ezekiel, then this living water makes all of the brackish water that's unfit to have anything in it, living in it, it makes it fresh water. But it says that those that want to be still brackish will remain brackish. That the living water is not going to change those that don't want to change. And that is what you see in the end of Revelation as well that those that don't want to change will be still outside. Will still be outside. So thus, when you see from the beginning, it's always been about is our desires overcoming our trust in the Lord? And what is it that wins out over our heart? And heart, as you see it throughout the Bible, is an expression of what your mind is doing. So what is filling in your mind is, that's like when Yeshua says there in Mark chapter 7, you know, out of the heart, the mouth speaks. So if your heart is full of darkness, what is going to come out of your mouth? Darkness. And if your heart is full of light, what is going to come out of your mouth? Light. And that is one of the things, the tension that has been going on from the garden. What is your heart going to be full of? What is it going to be full of? 
light versus darkness. So diving into this a little bit more. So when we see the tree of knowledge, that's really pointing down towards this smoke of Sodom that just keeps going up and up and up. And as we see, <laughs> we're talking about, uh, Diane was talking about the Jude earlier, the, the very short, <laughs> short but uh, content-rich little uh, letter of Jude or Yehuda there. And one chapter, verses 7 through 8 and 10, to really kind of keep things in focus as to what is going on here. So just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they in the same way as these indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh are exhibited as an example in the undergoing uh, example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. Yet in the same way, these men also by dreaming defile the flesh and reject authority and revile angelic majesties. But these men revile the things which they do not understand, and these things which they know by instinct like unreasoning animals. By these things they are destroyed. Now, one of the reasons why we're focusing like this is to keep the context of what this discussion going through this little tiny book is about. It is about specific types of people. Now, there are these references that get pulled into this. References talking about the angels in their station, locked up into eternal um, punishment, and then these the descending down, these interchanges in there. Now, these is an example somewhat of what we've talked about before, especially in the, the book of Hebrews. Uh, it's the call of a homer or the light and heavy argument. So the light argument is, or the easy to understand, the easy to accept, the easy to grasp. The light one is, well, you've heard about this that happened in the Torah. Well, then how much more then is the situation like this? And the situation like this is where the theme or the thread of this little tiny book is going. And it's about these types of people, which as it's uh, getting here, so it's making this comparison. So we pulled out the one comparison talking about Sodom and Gomorrah. Since they in the same way indulge in gross immorality and went after strange flesh are exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. There, it is an example of undergoing the eternal punishment. Yet in the same way, these men also by dreaming defile the flesh, reject, so get this, defile the flesh, reject authority, and revile angelic ministries, or as it is doxa, or glories. So they are rejecting authority in general that, that God sees. That is, so, but these men revile the things which they do not understand. And the things which they know by instinct, like unreasoning animals, by these things they are destroyed. Back to the tree again. Oh, it looks nice. It feels nice. Do it. That is the reasoning. So taking the things away from the mind back to the I wanna. Yeah, yes, uh, Christine. And man. Yes, back right? to the sixth great creation, beast and man. Right. And Beastle. Yes. And one of those those things that we talked about with uh, Genesis two and three is that picture is like, okay, 
Everything created after its kind, after its kind, after its kind, after its kind. And then you see that man, Adam, is looking, well, where is my kind? Where is my kind? Everything was brought to him saying, okay, name it. But there was nothing he could claim. He couldn't claim it because it wasn't after his kind. But then when the Lord specifically made Chava, Eve, and brought her to him, then what is it that he said? This is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. This is my kind. So what is the kind of man? What is mankind? Is mankind made after the image of God? Or is it after the image of animals? That wants to just do what, you know, there's this old thing, you know, do like they do on the Discovery Channel. You know, just, you have an instinct, you just go ahead and you do it. You don't process, should I do this? Uh, What is the long-term impact of what I'm going to do or what I want to do? Yes, Alex. Well, I mean, I always come back to the fact that man, by nature, is evil. It's, it's It's clearly written. So when, when we think, hey, you know, God's changed me. I'm just a wonderful person. Think twice and say, you know, your nature is going to always draw you back to look out for number one. Thank God for Scripture and the Spirit. We rise above it. But it's always yeah. ready to start right there. Right. You can't change that. Yeah. And that's, that's uh, one of the things to always recognize when you've ever talked with someone who's trying to they go through these uh, 12-step or other programs, one of the key things is to what? Identify, they call it, take a spiritual inventory. And a part of that is, where are my pitfalls? Where are these things? What, why do I do these things? Why do I want to do these things? Uh, yes, Deborah, go ahead. Yeah, so, um, um, of course, I, I mean, I got that bird. And, um, you know, um, the thing about it is my cat, he may not attack, but he, he might. And the lady that I'm living with, we were talking about, I said, well, at the end of the day, the cat is still a cat. It's an instinct. It may not mean to, but inside of its DNA and how it's hardwired, you know, and because of sin, we became the beast nature. So we are always forever, like Alex said, trying to subdue that nature of taking over tor- territory, you know, feeding, eating. And, you know, we have to use things, but we have to really be mindful of not to let that nature of ourselves, like he said, control us. And, you know, most people don't even think that like we do unless we bring it up like this. And I forget, you know, too, that I have to control that, you know, the lower nature of self. Yeah, the nefesh, yeah. Yeah, and... And you bring up the very interesting point about like a like a cat because you know there's animals that uh, you can train and there's all kinds of animals even cats you can you can train them and the main thing of training the cat is that they're actually in your house and they're not trying to chew on you all the time or claw you. Well, the thing is, well, where did these things mainly come from? And one of the key things you always hear from these animal trainers is trust, 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 trust. They have to trust you to actually go along. You basically, one of the things about the food training or this or that or the other is to do what? That what you're asking them to do is good for them. 
and you just keep demonstrating, demonstrating, and demonstrating so that if you don't have the food coming immediately to them, they will know, oh, okay, they're, this is the same one who gives me the food all the time. So when they're asking me to do this, this is a part of their whole giving me food all other times. So, and then so you don't need the food all the time because what? They learn to trust that they will get the food eventually. And they will get something nice eventually. So we, but but you think about that. You're you're dealing with an animal can't, you know, dogs can understand a whole lot of words, but they can't learn like sentences, context, this and that and the other. Um, not even the so-called great apes can do so. But you can also get just slight things across. Well, then how much more should we then? who can understand sentences and this and that and the other, be able to then uh, take these messages that come in and act on them and build trust and say, hey, this is the better way to go than that way to go. Instead of like an animal having to fumble around and wrestle with you for control and trust issues. No, you just uh, say, okay, I can understand this sentence coming in and say, okay, I can go forward with it. Um, uh, yes, go ahead. Yeah, going along with that, um, I think they said Sig- Siegfried and Roy, one of, one of them who got attacked by the yes. by the tiger, uh, he, yep. he, he admitted that he did a little dif- different thing and the animal, uh, you know, the tiger didn't recognize the, yep. the step he took. And they so are, that's when he attacked. Yeah. And you know, Creatures we, we, we tend to think, oh, they, can't, they haven't got memory, but they do have yes, memory. Yes, they do. And, They're uh, into so, patterns, and if things are so, out of the so, pattern. So the routines are really, really vital. You know, so if we go off our routine and, and we know that going into a step that is towards thing that we're, we're, we're weak in, we'll say, you know, it, it can make a, a big difference. But I, I see a question I have up there about scripture that says, in the same way, these men also by dreaming. Now, is that imagination dreaming? Yes. Or what is that dreaming? By their imaginations, yes. Oh, okay. All right. Thank you. Yes. Uh, Victor, I'm sorry. You had a, you had a comment or, or was that for Anne? Okay. Gotcha. All right. Well, another passage to take a look at here on this topic is uh, from Second Peter. So Peter's second letter, chapter 2, verses 7 through 10. And this, again, also is in the midst of pulling together a lot of examples from the Torah to say, okay, what do all of these lessons now tell us about how to live and how we, we put our uh, choice as to whether to go the way or our way into, into focus? So if he rescued righteous Lot, oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men, for by what he saw and heard that righteous man, while living among them, felt his righteous soul tormented day after day by their lawless deeds, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and to keep the, un- keep the unrighteous under judgment for the day of judgment." and especially those who indulge the flesh in its corrupt desires and despise authority. There it is again. The corrupt desires and uh, despise authority, which is going back to the garden again. So 
one of the things that's really good when it talks about, and the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation. Now, one of the key things that we have that is, means both the, the same, the sotero in, in uh, Greek and also the yesha in Hebrew, which we translate salvation, it basically means to rescue, to take you out of a bad situation quickly, just with utter haste, take you out. So thus, Passover that's salvation. That's rescuing you out of that issue. So in the same way, the apostle Peter is saying, hey, uh, this is a way that just like the Lord came in to Sodom and grabbed, (laughs) as we read there in the passage, he literally grabbed Lot, his wife, and his two daughters and drug them out of Sodom before the destruction came, so then he is able to do so with us out of, he's able to provide salvation, rescue out of our snare. When we are like Lot, uh, when it says he delayed, delayed a bit, because what? It's the fear of loss. You know, you, it says he'd sojourned among them, well, and then built the family and almost had in-laws, Yes, Rose, go, go ahead. Well, I think uh, what I find encouraging in that scripture is it says from day to day. Yes. It's not like if you do it once, well, we'll, we'll let that slide, but if you do it again, you're Tormented gone. Tormented day after Every day. Every day, you know, uh, so that's very comforting. Because a day doesn't go by, I have to say, okay, I did this, and this I thought this, or I said that, it, that I have to repent. So yeah. <laughs> praise God that it's from day to day. Yes. From day to day. Okay. Yeah, and when we talk about your, uh, it says his righteous soul was tormented day after day. Well, what do you do with it? Do you, um, as Paul says, do you let your conscience be seared with like a hot iron so that you don't feel anything anymore? Or is it like lots, you're crying out day after day after day? You know, as, as you see there at the time of the, it's called the triumphant entry, you read it in the Gospels, and everybody's crying out, Hoshiana, Hoshiana, save us, save us from the midst of this. Yes, the work of the Spirit steps in. Live and walk by the Spirit as yes. opposed to the flesh. Yes. Oh, uh, Pat, uh, see you got your hand up there. Go ahead. Yeah. One thing that's, I guess, it's just always troubled me about this scripture, uh, Lot being righteous and yet offering his two daughters to the men outside. I do whatever you want with them. I, that troubles me a lot. And I'm trying to figure out what, I, I, I guess I'm trying to weigh the two. Like he was righteous, but he would give out his daughters to be violated. Yeah. Uh, there's all kinds of ideas that have come on the uh, various centuries about that. One that is quite interesting is that it also pairs together with this particular passage we're looking at here, is that one whose righteous soul was vexed day after day after day. He knew what Sodom was like. In a sense, he was perhaps throwing them their last lifeline. By offering them, not knowing that they would not take the daughters and 
what would actually be coming. So it's actually kind of a discussion we'll be getting into here in just a couple other passages. But thank you, Pat, for bringing that up. That's a that is a is a great one. But one idea is that this was a you could say part of a last lifeline to Saddam because Lot himself knew that they would not want they would not want the daughters because you know whether you talk about the the whatever sin that you want to ascribe to Saddam uh, some people say it's about hospitality it's just basically selfishness is the is the core of it so he knew that this was about power and you know if you've ever heard those terrible things that you hear about in prison um, some of it is about urges but a lot of it is about power and domination and humiliation so Lots, in a sense, knew exactly what the reaction would be from the people of his offer. Yes, Pat. Oh, I'm sorry, uh, Diane. That was you, I guess. Yeah. All right. Okay. Yes, it, it was me. I wanted to say something really wonderful about Abraham. Uh, when the Lord would call him, and he'd say, "Here I am." He didn't mess around. He didn't say, <laughs> yeah. I'll get to you when I finish watching the Hallmark <laughs> movie or finish doing. You know what I'm, you know, you know, I know you all know what I'm saying. He was right then and there. He was right on it. And that even though he knew when he had to take Yitzhak up, up on, you know, to be sacrificed, he knew God would provide it. But can you imagine his appearance? How he, uh, uh, a human being that he knew that he was going to have to take the life of another or thought that he was. And that, but he was always like, here I am, Lord. And it makes me think, Diane, say it. Here I am, Lord. You know, it's like, yeah. uh, instead of uh, time, I would not today, but maybe sometime I will give my testimony on when I chose to walk, watch a Hallmark movie versus what. God was calling me for, and I missed the blessing and didn't get that blessing for a few years because I chose to watch a Hallmark movie about a prince and a princess. Anyway, thank you very much. Yeah, I mean, so, Pat, uh, is that answer what you're uh, talking about? Hopefully, there's a couple of passages coming up that might help further. Well, yeah, I, I mean, I can... The one thing I can see with Lot was he thought he could put his daughters out there, and because of the, their behavior, he knew they wouldn't want a woman. Yeah. He, because, but at the same time, just, I guess, I putting myself in that place, I couldn't imagine putting my children out there, you know, saying, like, hoping they'll make it. I mean, it just, yes. it still troubles me. <laughs> anyway, you look at it. Yeah. Yeah, well, the, the the whole thing of being in Saddam to begin with is uh, quite troubling. Uh, yes, the layer, Larry. Yeah, sorry, bad bad choices. Um, another thing that could be that I hadn't thought of before we were talking about this is he had those three angels there with him who had grabbed them and pulled them in. Maybe he thought, you know, like it won't, it, well, they won't get hurt because these angels are going to protect them yeah. by showing, just like Abraham showed faith. That God was not going to make him sacrifice his son. He even told his, when he left, he said, we're going to go forth and we'll come back to his, to his servants. People miss that. He said, we'll, we'll go and worship and we will be back. So he knew that it wasn't going to happen. 
He didn't know how it wasn't going to happen, but he trusted God. So maybe Lot had a little bit of that in him too, although he made some real bad choices. Yeah, bad, bad choices. But Put himself in jeopardy. Yeah. Put himself in jeopardy, but you know, one of those things that you could say is that he was crying out day after day. So he had the connection open. But he needed, thankfully, the, the mercy of God uh, grabbed him forcefully and said, okay, now it's, it's decision time. You need to, to move forward with it. So, um, yeah, actually, moving forward into a passage here in Luke chapter 17, which we went over uh, earlier. But this uh, part here in um, verse 28, it was the same, and this, again, was using two comparisons here. Uh, first, in the days of Noah, which is the beginning of the passage, starting in verse 25. So this continuing in verse uh, 28, in, it was the same as happened in the days of Lot. And they were eating, they were drinking, they were buying, selling, they were planting, they were building. But on the day that Lot went out from Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. So a very interesting thing that you, you see that the Messiah is talking about. It almost sounds a lot like, like what was said after the flood. What did the Lord say to Noah after the flood? There will be, there will be seasons. They will be coming, they will be going, they will be coming, they will be going. And we see that as the mercy of God, that these things will, will go on. But as the Apostle Peter says, and as the Messiah is reminding us, hey, we shouldn't just take these things for granted. And they were buying, they were selling, they were planting, they were building, totally oblivious to what it was that was happening. Totally oblivious to it until you had this disruptor that came in this disruptor lots and he was not going along with the program so then as the passage continues there through verse 33 it would be the, just the same way that the son of man is revealed on that day the one who is on the housetop and whose goods are in the house must not go in to take them out, and likewise the one who is in the field must not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to keep his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life will preserve it. So that idea of you think that your life is just about, uh, as it mentions (laughs) earlier, you think your life is just about getting stuff the buying, the selling, you know, going about the days of life. When you realize that these really are, each day is a gift from God, and to keep the important things into perspective. Because you know that they always talk about, in the past couple of years, you hear a lot of people talking about, oh, well, I need to get in touch with the more important things in life, not work myself to death and... But the issue is, is that, well, where are you now going to seek your peace? Where, where are you seeking it? Yeah. You see it in Psalm 121 where it says, you know, I lift my eyes up to the hills. Well, do you see actually where the help is coming from? Is it from the mountain power? 
Is it from the tree god? Where is it actually coming from? Is it from you know the sounds of the universe twinkling through the trees and the rippling of the water? Where is your help actually coming from? So, continuing on, when we go back to this Genesis chapter 19, verse 28. And he, talking about Abraham here, looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley. And he saw, and behold, the smoke of the land ascended like the smoke of a furnace. The smoke of the land ascended like the smoke of a furnace. That phrase shows up again and again and again and again. But it's very interesting where you also see almost the exact same phrase show up. In Exodus 19, verse 18. Now, Mount Sinai was all in smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire, and its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mountain quaked violently. So, in a sense, you might say, well, what is what smoke is what we should be paying attention to and learning from? Is the smoke of Sinai what we see going up forever and ever, are we also paying attention to the smoke of Sodom going up again as a lesson to us of what happens of this place? Hey, it's going to be perpetually desolate. And why is it perpetually desolate? Because of what happened leading up to its being destroyed and left perpetually desolate. So then what is Sinai's legacy? What is its legacy? What came from Sinai? When they went to the mountain, they met the Lord and the tablets of the testimony. So the smoke of Sinai that goes up forever and ever is the testimony of the Lord. Its legacy then goes on and on and on. And you see something similar when you get down and talk about in Revelation chapter 14 verses 9 through 12. And it says, Then another angel, a third one, followed, saying in a, with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and his image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is mixed in full strength in the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. They have no rest day and night, those who worship the beast in his image and whoever receives the mark of his name. Here is the perseverance of the saints who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Yeshua. So when you... Uh, look at this particular uh, passage here. It goes after Revelation chapter 13, which has in it where you talk about the mark of in the hand and the mark in the forehead. Then versus the uh, following on here in chapter 14 with the mark of the name of God on the forehead and where you see it uh, coming up. So, in the Revelation chapter 13, the mark in the head, the mark in the hand, is a parallel back to Ezekiel chapter 9, verse 4, 
in Ezekiel 9, chapter, verse 4, which if, if you're not already aware, uh, reading the book of Revelation and the book of Ezekiel almost side by side with each other is a good idea because a lot of what you see talked about in Ezekiel is reflected in Revelation. So much so that you'll see some commentaries will say, well, um, the, the writer of Revelation just lifted stuff from Ezekiel and just put a spin on it. <laughs> you know, you see that, no, that's, that's not the way prophecy works. You see the prophets will riff on or reference each other and other parts of the Torah. You'll see Isaiah will talk about stuff that Yemeriahu, Jeremiah, talks about, and they are talking about in two separate points in time, before the exiles and after. Oh, I'm sorry, Elisa, go ahead. Uh, where is the 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 mark at the uh, bestia? The beast. Ah, the mark of the beast. Yeah. Yes. So as as we're talking about one of the 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 pictures that you see, like in Ezekiel chapter nine, is you see the picture. In that one, you're only seeing the mark of God. The mark of God is writing his name upon the forehead. And specifically in Ezekiel 9, 4, it says that he's writing the name of God on the forehead of those who, sounds familiar, weep and cry about what? What is going on with the state of the nation? Sounds a lot like who? Lot. Sounds a lot like what Lot was doing. They're in Sodom. So one of the things that's talked about in the time of uh, when Ezekiel was writing, he's kind of bridging that bef right before the exile into Babylon and right after the exile into Babylon. So he's talking to a people that are, you know, seeing pretty much the death knell of the southern kingdom and then in an exile and wondering how did this happen? Um, Ezekiel is there to say, okay, I warned you it was going to happen. Okay, now, now that it has happened, here is why it happened. So thus, for those that are now in exile in Babylon, they're the ones weeping and crying. And they likely were weeping and crying before they were in Babylon. Weeping and crying over the descent of where is what's happening around you. Now, that is the mark of God. So, thus you see the, the opposite form of it, the mark of the beast. That is, now you see the, the mark of God, both in Ezekiel and in Revelation, is only in one place. It's only in the forehead. So, it is only kind of like what you see with the Shema. These are to be frontals between your eyes and on your hand. So, these are the things that they're in your mind, they're in your heart, they are, they are the core of what you are. And then on your hands, they are in what you do. So the words of God are the core of what you think about, where your emotions, your, your source of that is, and also in then what comes out of you and what you do, what you say, etc., etc. So in the end, the core of who you are is that is where the mark of God is, that you're weeping over the situation and how it is. Now, there when it talks about the mark of the beast, that is, if you were to take the corollary of the Shema, the mark 
in the head, the mark in the forehead. So for those who follow the beast, they have their frontals in their forehead and on their hand. Well, for those who follow the beast, it is in the core of what you are. Those are what you call the true believers. And then you have on your hand, those are the ones that just do it to go along. And you see that in history. Those two groups of people, the true believers and the capitulators. You even see it like we're coming up in the time of the Maccabean time of Hanukkah. And when you read, especially 1st Maccabees, you'll see that. That that there are some that just, uh, these edicts are coming down to uh, the Seleucid Empire is coming in to try to erase the Torah from the culture of Israel. And they're passing these edicts. You you can't read the Torah. You can't do the stuff that's in the Torah. No, 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 no. And it mentions in there that there are some who tried to, <laughs> I don't know how, um, the various historians have tried to explain how this is possible and some explanations for it, but uh, in pre-modern medicine, they were trying to remove the marks of circumcision. To what? To go along, to get along. So, those were what you would say the people that are like, hey, uh, I just got to get by. Um, I, I have to get by. They're making me do this. I'll just do it. I may not really believe it, but maybe if they see that I'm sort of doing it, they'll leave me alone. And you'll see in his history and you'll see in the totalitarian things that have come down through time, there are the true believers who really believe in it and then the ones who just go along. And the ones who go along are the majority of it. Whether you're talking about in the Soviet Empire, whether you're talking about in the Nazi Empire, you, you name the totalitarian regime, and there's always the true believers and the capitulators, and the ones that will just go along because they don't want their boat rocked. Or you could say, hey, they're just looking to try to save their neck in the process. Kind of similar to what we saw there in than Luke when it was talking about the one who wants to save his life in the end will will lose his life. Because, you know, you see in the aftermath and more recent memory, we have the records of what happened in Germany under the Nazi regime. And those who capitulated, it is a very difficult conversation. Some will say that was a huge mistake. Others will just deny. They will just not admit that they made that mistake. Because, I mean, that's, that's a horrible thing to say. That just by your going along with it, you were a party to it. You know, when they went and the um, Allied armies went and came and liberated some of those execution camps there that the Nazi regime had throughout Europe, they, one of the things they did, and some of them, is they marched the local townspeople out to go tour it. Some were shocked. How could this happen? Others knew it was happening and just didn't want to know it was happening. So that, that's a thing that you see that happens throughout history. And as you see in the day of the Lord, it will be very much the same. Same as it ever was. Uh, yes, uh, I, I'm, I'm sorry. Did that answer your question a little bit? Yes. Yes, uh, Sam, go ahead. Um, uh, you know, uh, touching on that, it's we just, you know, based on the election we just had, 
you know on uh, abortion yes uh i know you know it's a very sensitive issue but yes. uh, it's just you know similar to what you are saying that whether we are taking a stand as a believer with god or what everybody is saying because we have to remember that uh, righteousness is uh is a choice that we have to make that i want to be right with god and whether you know doesn't matter which party you know we belongs to as a believer what did the lord require of us which side are we standing on yes which eyes are we writing on you know and um, I, I i just uh i was in shock with some of uh, the christian friends what was coming out of yes. them because of this uh you know they, you know, i just like okay i, I think we uh, yeah so yeah the second uh question that i have is uh, i just want help me to understand this because it's something that has really, really uh troubling my mind kind of like and i've had so many rabbis saying uh taking a different stand on this and this uh scripture explains it today that says let, let me pick from and the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever yes and they have no rest day and night mm -hmm. those who worship the beast so i've had uh, so many rabbis say you know there's no such things as you know forever tormented it's just temporary you come back god will never never torment or cast somebody in the fire forever but this is this is not agreeing with with that theology so i don't know so i just you know want you to help me out here <laughs> yeah well there is there is that um it, it goes back to one of those things that we've uh, talked about with the with the phrase um le'alam vaed which is translated as forever and ever and le'alam just means just in your quick little uh, hebrew lesson olam it depends on how you translate it. sometimes it's translated universe sometimes it's translated world that which would the world sometimes it is to the edge of what you can see various ways that that's used so and ed just is something that means beyond that so strictly speaking let alam vied is to the edge of where you can see like the horizon and over the edge and over the horizon of that so that's why you can then see when it talks about forever and ever like um you'll see in various things about you know these tabernacle will last forever and ever well the tabernacle didn't last forever and ever but it lasted until it didn't last anymore it lasted until like with shiloh where it says okay that's it and the lord himself the glory departed and then that departed from shiloh and then then there was the inspiration for the temple and then you see the glory of the lord moved in there so the tabernacle was until it wasn't but the lord said okay it's coming to an end and so it restarted there in the temple so thus you see with 
forever and ever and the smoke rising forever and ever. That's why that passage that we saw back in Jude was very important because, let's see here, yes. Uh, Jude chapter, uh, chapter 7, chap- verse 7, there are 7 and 8 when it talks about that Sodom and Gomorrah are an example in the undergoing punishment of eternal fire. So the question is, is that how can they be an example of the punishment of eternal fire? The fire came down and it became uninhabitable. So the, the, the lesson of it and the smoke of it goes up forever and ever and ever until it ends. And then you see like in prophets like uh, Isaiah when it gets to the end of the book and it's talking about where the people go out onto the ashes of the wicked. That really fits with where you see in Revelation chapter 19 where it talks about that the death and the grave or death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire and then destroyed. Well, our death and Hades and death in the grave burning forever and ever. Because when you see in chapter 21 and then chapter 22, there is no more death. There is no more pain, no more suffering for the, what? The former things have passed away. It's the same thing you see right at the end of Isaiah chapter 66. The former things have passed away. That old order of life with the death, the grave, that's gone. That is gone. There is no more of that. So thus, when you see in Revelation 22, you don't see a tree of knowledge of good and bad. You see one tree, the tree of life, that is back where it always was in the midst of the garden. And at that point, the people actually acknowledge, hey, it is in the middle of the garden of God. That is where the Lord planted it, and people now acknowledge, yes, that is where it is, and that's where we see it is. It's in the middle of the garden, not the tree of knowledge of good and bad, because <laughs> as to use the vernacular, by that time, humanity is, uh, we've been there, we've done that. We've been to that tree of knowledge of good and bad. We, we're done with that. That is now gone. That is, the old former things have now passed away. Death, the grave, gone. So, thus, the forever and ever, it has gone to its point, it's gone to the horizon, and it's gone over the edge. And now, it's out of sight anymore. So, that is how you see Le'alam Va'ed, or forever and ever, used throughout the Tanakh, to the point of, it is going until it's done. And that's the same with unquenchable fire. It will burn, and there will be nothing to stop it. No fire department, no you know, uh, aerial bombardment is going to put out that fire. It is going to burn until there is no more grave, there's no more death, the former things are passed away, and then new heavens and a new earth. And that is the reality of the way things will be from then on. Oh, I'm sorry, Larry. You're leaving you hanging up there in the air there. <laughs> I thought maybe you were going to say it anyway, but I think, and also, the lesson is still with us. Like, yes. Going, it's still here. Smoke is still How going long? up. 3,500 years. Yeah. And it's still here, so it's not burning anymore, but we still remember it, and we know the lesson, 
Yes. And hopefully we've learned it. Like you said, that's when it's over the horizon. We've learned it. We don't need the lesson anymore, but it, we still have it there. Yes. We still remember. And that also is a great reminder of what the Apostle Paul gets at, is that the Torah being a tutor, you know, you're, the point is, is that you need to learn these things, as you say, cold. You need to learn these things so they become a part of you. Whether, you know, like Danielle was talking about practicing for music. Whether you're talking about practicing this, practicing that. Whether it's about motor skills. If you need to do something that's a very complicated task, you need to do it until it is a, just a part of you. You don't have to think about it anymore. And then... You know, do you forget it? I sure hope not, because that would be disastrous. No, you just, you're not having to, like, get out the, uh, you know, the Torah for dummies every time you need to flip through and find uh, how to live life. No, it's just actually become a part of you now. You, you move forward with it. But it's not something that you're beating someone over the head over. No, it's just it becomes a part of you, and you move on with it. So it is not something external anymore. It's from inside of you. It has become a part of your heart. Fill your heart with light, and then the light then comes out. Uh, yes, Christine. Uh, pardon my uh, personal antidote, but that's a little bit about what I was praying about for my father and I. Mm. Let it just be something I don't speak about, just do. You know, and that's difficult because I want to speak. Yeah. Yes, it is. Take the scriptures and, you know, he knows all that. So let my feet. And then when I was thinking again about the mark of the beast, right? So it's six, 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 sixth day of creation. Uh, beast was made on the sixth day and humanity was made on the sixth day. And it, for me, um, the mark of God is keeping Sabbath and following Torah and having the testimony of Yeshua. So. Yeah, that's the sign for me, and I suppose it'll just keep getting revealed and revealed as we move closer and closer, if this is the generation of the last days. Yeah, indeed. Indeed. Uh, Danielle. Yeah. Um, also, my mom always says that the devil, the devil takes what God makes good and turns it into something evil. Just like the rainbow, before God did the rainbow as a sign of a promise, but now the rainbow means... Like yes. LGBTQ, yeah. Yes, exactly. So then, when we come back to um, this picture where we are in Romans chapter 1, one of the things we see that Vayera is really showing this contrast, showing the contrast between hospitality and and intercession, which is really selflessness. You are stretching outside of yourself and contrasting that with you know, what Avraham and Lot were demonstrating and contrasting that with the inhospital- <laughs> inhospitality and the inhospitableness of Sodom and their oppression in the process. Now, being inhospitable and being oppressive that is selfishness. Because what? If you want to dominate somebody, you are thinking, I want them to be like me. Why don't you think like me? And if you don't think like me, I will make you think like me. I will, yeah, <laughs> I, will, I will make you think like me. 
and then also um, oppressing people that need help, that is also a form of selfishness, either by contempt, looking down upon somebody, or just, you know, you're inconveniencing me. So, thus, those that are inconvenient are cast aside. You're, you're getting in my way. I either can't do what I want, or you're slowing me down from doing what I want. Or, you know, as, as you see in some legends say about Sodom and Gomorrah, the fear being that Lot would take away from their um, pursuit of what you see in Luke chapter 17 of houses and, and goods and stuff like that. So thus you see that Avraham was pleading for mercy there in Genesis 18. And then in, in chapter 19, you see <laughs> that the people of Sodom were either mocking like the uh, future sons-in-law, or they were deriding that mercy shown to them and saying, hey, you're a sojourner. You're a sojourner who came in here. And the, it says the young and the old of Saddam were coming. Now the old were supposed to be what? People who have been around a long time. You should know more. You should have had the experience to then say, I now have experience and now wisdom to say, okay, I've been through life, and now I can put what I know works to good use. But in a sense, you're seeing that even though they were old and had been around a long time, they were not wise. And it's also interesting when it talks about that they were chastising Lot as being a sojourner, as it talks about there in Hebrew, and for judging them, and yet, where do you see Lot? It says he was sitting in the gate. Now, you probably have seen the description from archaeology where they talk about that in the gates, the gates were made big in certain ancient Near East cities because that's where, strangely enough, they would have court. Now, if I was thinking about, uh, I was thinking about like strategic defenses, and why would you put your court in a gate? You'd think that you'd put it in the middle or in a defensive keep, not in the gate. But that is where the commerce would go. So that's where they would have the courts would be in the gate. So they would be judging what was coming and going. Coming, yeah, taxes, you know, so you get your customs, all of that was being decided there in the gate. And that is where Lot, so Lot sitting in the gate, you see the same thing with Mordecai. Mordecai, so you see him sitting in the gate. That's not just a flippant mention. That means that he was somebody in the city. In Susa, he was a somebody to be sitting in the gate. So Lot was a somebody for sitting in the gate. Yes? One of David's sons also go to the gate and yes. try to... Absalom, was it Absalom? Yes. Yeah, went into the gate. Yes. So thus... Yeah, basically you're trying to seize power, influence, control over the city by, you know, controlling the gates. So it's just very interesting that they're chastising Lot. Hey, who are you to judge us? Well, that's why he's sitting in the gate. He's a judge. He was to be an elder of the city sitting there in the gate. So... Sadly, they're not saying, okay, we thought he was wise enough to sit in the gate, but not wise enough to tell us, hey, you got to stop this. 
you, you, you can't keep going on like this. So, thus, we get into some of the aspects of... Uh, Lee, did you want to say something? Yes, I was backtracking just a little yes. bit. You said something about they want them to be like us, the, you know, the bad people. Well, back... AT&T had to go to the Supreme Court, probably it was in the early 80s. They did this twice in... Ten years, and our company that I worked for had to. We were trying, what they were trying to do is have people have allegiance without thinking, and change the vocabulary, the way things are interpreted. And I used to watch them from the balcony because this was supposed to be for only management. And I would go, I'd see them, I'd say, "Bad, like a sheep," you know. <laughs> and they would have them stand on surf, on boards uh, about six feet up, and they had to fall down backwards, and people would catch them. Or oh, yes. Or people and take team, Yes, the team building. And they went to the Supreme Court and said that was illegal. Hmm. That's very interesting. Yeah, but they tried it twice. They're not supposed to they change the vocabulary and to do things to make people without thinking do anything. So it's not, and plus, I had a friend that was trying to get into management, went for an interview, and this was about 15 years ago. The last question they asked him, would you support us if we did something illegal? And he said no, and he didn't get the job. Mm. Well, the only reason I bring that up, it's still out there. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, yeah, you, you bring up a very interesting point. That's what they, they call uh, the toxic work environment. So that's where you'll hear that some uh, labor law attorneys will say that if you're facing some sort of a, a practice like that, you know, for example, one of the things going on right now is uh, the, the, the diversity, equity, and inclusion training in your company. And, you know, if the, the training starts to get, uh, you could say, exclusionary to say certain people because of the amount of melanin you have in your skin makes you less or more of someone who is a person or someone who is oppressive. Now, one of the things that they say is you can push back upon the people and say, you are creating a toxic work environment by, by doing that. And that is exactly what Lee is talking about. They cannot make you think a certain thing. And they cannot make you... Because um, uh, one of the things that's going on right now is when they talk about definitions of religion, one of the people think, oh, religion is just about, you know, Places where you either have a an organ or guitars playing or something like that, and you know they get out the Bible or whatever. No, religion is about, and its basic thing is a thing that makes you have a uh, decision about who you are as a person and where you fit into the world. So there is one of the things that uh, people say and have and are making the argument right now is that the neo-Marxism that's going on right now is, by that, a def- by that definition, a religion. Because it is changing your view of where you fit into the world and where you um, do things. And as we, we look at what we're looking at here in Romans, and where you saw the discussion there of Lot, and 
what they were trying to force him to do back in Sodom, it's a lot of the same thing. They were trying to force him to think about the world and his place in it differently. And in a sense, creating a toxic work environment, a toxic living environment for where he's living in, you know, creating a division in there. And similar, as we go in through our passage here in Romans, as it gets into chapter 2, that's one of the things that Paul is saying. You are saying and making a distinction because someone, you come through a descendant that comes from Israel. Well, great, to the Jew first, then to the Greek. The Jew first, you have a head start on the people from the nations. That's it. In the end, you have to have the same point that everyone else does. And you'll see it like when you get to Acts chapter 10 and 11 and 12. They're saying, well, hey, uh, we came the same way the nations did by the Spirit. We received the Spirit the same way they did. So that is the way that you are entering into the kingdom of God the same way. It's just people who, as Paul puts it, are entrusted with the oracles of God, meaning the Torah, faithfully transmitting it, making sure that you communicate it through time. You've got a great head start. But don't think that that's like your magic charm to get into the kingdom of God. You should be then take that as a springboard and go, wow, praise God that I was given a head start. I've got less to unlearn (laughs) before going into the kingdom, but not consider it to treat other people as lower class of citizen because they didn't get that head start. Yeah, learning about God's government, and that's a hugely important thing. So when Paul was talking about here in Romans 1, verses 14 through 17, this is a very important thing. He says that he must proclaim the good news of the Messiah, and as back in verse 9, you see what this gospel is, the good news, what this news is. The news is of the Mashiach. Now, this news, as he says, he's felt compelled like he's got a debt to both the, um, as he calls it, the Greeks and the barbarians, those that are wise and those that are foolish, those that know stuff, those that don't know stuff. He feels compelled that, hey, this is an important message for everybody out there, both for the now, where you're talking about to deliver them, both those that know God in Israel and those that don't know God in the nations to deliver them from the way of death. Or as you see it described later on in chapter 7 and 8 of Romans as the law of sin. You are delivered from that because that way always leads where? Death. And as Paul puts it right at the end of chapter 7 of Romans, you know, who can deliver me from this body of death? And praise be to Yeshua, our Messiah. Amen. And it's not just for the now that we are delivered from this way of death by the law of the spirit of life in Messiah Yeshua, but it's also for the not yet, for the day of the Lord, from death itself, or as Paul puts it at the end of Romans chapter 8, for the redemption of our body the resurrection. 
So it's the now and the not yet. We're rescued now and we'll be rescued then. Now and then. And then he goes on into this interesting aspect in Romans uh, chapter 1, verses 18 through 23, and setting up this where he's talking about idolatry. And this really, you can look at his discussion here where he's talking about creation and this idolatry results from this really denial of something that should be self-evident to the truth around you, that everything that exists out there was created by someone powerful and praiseworthy. And then he goes on as he's talking about, now when he's talking about to the wise and to the foolish, some of those that might be in the wise category are some of those that there are some Greek philosophies that got close to that idea. Some ideas like going toward the idea of like the prime mover that was in Greek philosophy, that was pretty close to the kingdom. At least you're like saying, no, this is not Olympus, this is not Kronos and all that stuff. This is, there was something that transcends all of that that got things moving. Now, they got close, but then missed it. And that's where we get the word atom from. We, the, where we talk about atom and the things that, uh, the being a fundamental part of matter, well, they, the idea that there was these fundamental building blocks that kind of built themselves. So got close and then, ugh. So getting get to the scourge that we now have faced for 150 years or more, about things just building themselves. So you got close to the idea, yeah, there's something out there, but then it just built itself. So that is where you have a, an issue. But those so-called Elohim or the powerful ones out there that societies have put forward just really don't stack up. Whether you're talking about, as the Bible puts it, the Baals, which are the, the lords, and there was a lot of them. If you look back in ancient Near East history, there's a lot of Baals. Baal Siphon, the one of the north, and then the one of thunder, and then on and on and on and on and on it goes. And then the Ashtoreths, there was a lot of them too. And each kind of uh, society had its own variation of it. Yes, uh, Christine. Were there a lot of Abimelechs as well? Yes. Okay. Yeah, because Abimelech just means uh, my... My father is the king. So some people have wondered, is that like a title? Is it like paro, which just means like, <laughs> it's kind of funny because paro just, it, it's actually thought to be a, deriv- a derivation of a Hebrew word, which means big house, which is kind of like white house. So pharaoh just is like a term of uh, house. The, the man of the house is what pharaoh kind of, falls out is. And some people think Avimelech is sort of the same thing. That uh, that was a term, title, something like that. It means the big cheese. So one of the things that you would see is that uh, most at fault are those who really claim, who really claim to be wise yet are denying, more importantly, or suppressing what's self-evident. So those are the ones that are you know, dragged away into this apart from God. But more at fault are the ones that drag them away or lead them away 
to somewhere else, like what Paul's talking about. They suppress the truth in unrighteousness. They are suppressing it. And you see, like in our Declaration of Independence, now this comes from a culture that was taking these things to truly be self-evident. Even, you know, some were closer to God than others, but even the ones that were, you could say, marginal in their view of God, at least you could see, hey, there is this, what you see in the original framers' writings called providence. There is this thing out there that's above you. It's above the kings. It's above everything, which is where you get this idea, hey, even the king, King George, he's, he is reporting to providence. He, the king just can't do whatever he wants to do. He has to report to providence. So there are those things that should be self-evident to the king. Hey, these are things that are basic to everybody. That men are created equal and they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. And among those are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Or as one original draft put it, or the pursuit of property. And that means... This is something that is mine and that is yours. And I respect yours and you respect mine. Just mutual respect for this and that and the other. So then it goes from this, setting this thing up. Basically, it should be evident to everybody in the world that there is something outside of the Baals. There's something outside of Olympus that is setting things in motion. That is not how things got to be was through these various views of various gods doing whatever they want. So that goes then into his next discussion in, in verses 24 through 27, which is <laughs> some of the most problematic ones for today's culture here today, Romans chapter 1, verses 24 through 27. And he's building on this idea. It's like, well, because they wouldn't acknowledge that nature comes from a nature creator well then god as it says gave them over it's like okay so to the enlightened pursuit of their desires of things that as paul puts it that are not natural or para natural para physics against physics and things and it's it's very interesting because it goes back into this discussion that um, of the things that were natural and the things that were unnatural. Because even, and, and Paul gets at this in one of his other letters in Corinth, when he's talking to, in Corinth, that they are tolerating a um, close familial relationship that even, as he says, even the pagans would say, this is bad. And as you, a lot of folks have done work on this over time to say what Paul's talking about this against nature was a commonly known term. You see it show up in Greek philosophy and Greek historical writings where people were saying, hey, some of those excesses that were going on in Sparta and in Athens and stuff like that, that was parafizo, against physics, against nature. That's just not the way it happens. Because Why? It should be self-evident that male, female, baby. That should be self-evident. If you even you have, if you were around no other women ever, but you were around 
and seeing what was happening to animals, you would see what? Male, female, child. Yes. That they reproduce. That's the way it goes. So it should be self-evident to those who are paying attention unless you what? Suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Because what? You want to do it. You want to go a different way. Or if you want to, like the capitulators that have happened over time, explain what your friend or maybe something that happened in your family or some other favored situation or people group, what they're doing as well. And that's what you see at the end part of chapter one, where it's like, you know, they're not only do it themselves, but they're praising or congratulating those that are doing it as well. So that is what you then see as Romans 1, verses 29 through 32. It's like step, step, step. Reject the creator, reject what's self-evident. Then you're like, I'm going to do things that are even against nature. And then it moves down into, even if you're not doing those things yourself, you've now got that into your heart. That is now a part of your heart. So that you're not like Lot anymore, anguishing and crying over these things because that's going against what you know is true. You don't even know it is true anymore. You've now just moved uh, move the window over to where you have a different view of, of uh, what is truth anymore. So because they didn't want to keep their creator as top of mind, then it says God gave them over to a depraved mind or to a mind that is shifted. It's not anchored. It is a, and a very interesting a, a picture where it says depraved, not standing up to the test. And how that word there of adokimos is used it's used with metal you often see it in greek literature referring to if you have a metal and you test it it breaks it doesn't live up to what you want it to do so thus that is what your mind now it's it it just flops around it doesn't have any sort of anchor it doesn't do what a mind is supposed to do and to anchor you so then you are what like Instinct now, almost back to instinct, and moving from that. Yes, an animal society. So that's kind of where we'll end things here today. So, any last uh, questions as we uh, close out? Yes, Alex. Just a quick statement. It's nice having a non-problematic Paul. That was good. I mean, he's spot on with that stuff. Yes, <laughs> it's 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 like where where the uh, the uh, the non antinomian Paul. Yes, which is what is that a double negative? So yes, so thus he's the nomian Paul. Uh, antinomian means against law. So a non antinomian means is in favor of law. So or nomian. So thus. A Paul who, um, as, as he says, the law is good if you do what with it? Use it lawfully. Use it for what it's intended to do, not for what it's not intended to do. Which is where he gets at this at the end of chapter 2 at Romans. 
It's not intended to be a barrier, dividing line, a matter of prejudice between the in-club and the out-club. It is to, hey, it's the lifeline for the world. You should be, you know, it's like uh, we've seen previously that this, that we are in the ambassadors, the Messiah, with the ministry of reconciliation, bringing those who are far off to those who are near to the commonwealth of Israel. Yes, to big, make the tent bigger for the city that just keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger. Yes. So may it, may it be so, either in our time or in time to come. Amen. Amen. And, oh, yes, uh, Anne, go ahead. Um, getting back to Lot and went at the gate, I mean, it's like, well, okay, so does that mean that we as believers ought to run for election or be at the gate in our government, you know, making a voice heard? Although yeah, for, what, for whatever you're, you're called to do, because Lot was a witness to those around him. Sodom chose to uh, ignore him and deride him and even attack him. Oh, so, so, yes, a, and go ahead, please. A second question was about Abraham just looked towards Sodom and he saw the smoke going up, but he really didn't know if Lot was saved. I mean, if Lot had been rescued or not at that point. I mean, he had, he had faith that God heard his prayer, but I don't, I, I mean, is there... There's really no indication he knew for sure. I mean, it's yeah, I mean, it's, it's not in the in the record. People have come up with legends about whether he knew and what he didn't know and this and that, but he did not know. But that's one of those things where he said he left him with, if there's 10 righteous in the city, then it will be saved. So then the the picture is, well, just like what would eventually happen with his son, did he trust that if there was less than 10 and the place was going up in smoke, that whoever was that under 10 bit would be not there when it happened, however that would happen? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I hope it, hope it, it, it could have been. It could have been what? Uh, it could have been at least six, at least, but uh, ended up being four and then three. Yes, uh, Sam. Uh yeah, I think uh, the, with the Abraham, you know, what he, the scripture that remind, reminded me of is uh, the prayer of the righteous. Yes. Availed much. And uh, in the, la uh, the last part of um, apostolic uh, uh, writing, reading in the book of Luke that we read today, uh, in chapter 18, verse 1, he said, now he was telling them a parable to show that at all times they ought to pray and ought to lose heart. I mean, that, you know, as we see all this thing going on, we yes. have to take a posture, you know, uh, of Abraham to intercede, yes. you know, to, to, to use uh, whatever, you know, God has given us to plead with him, you know, to save, you know, this world, to bring revival, Amen. to be so on the heart of the people. Yeah. The Ministry of Reconciliation, indeed. Uh, yes, Daniel, go ahead. Also going back to like law and the other people wanting to hurt him. Mm -hmm. um, this happens a lot in the Bible where God tells someone to do something, but um, a lot of the people around them don't like it because yeah. they're so used to 
what they know. Right. Yeah, it's one of those things we talked about with uh, the normalcy bias that, as it's come to be known, is that you are so familiar with the way things normally go that you assume that they will go that way, and at the worst, you want it to go that way, and you will ignore all the warning signs that say things have changed dramatically or are about to change dramatically, and you should respond. Yes. I also like relative morality, right? Mm. Comparing each other and saying, well, I'm not as bad as that person. <laughs> At least I'm not as right? bad as that guy. Well, yes. you know, I may, but not like this. Yeah. yeah. So it's that capitulation, as you spoke about, you know, measuring. Well, great. We'll close things out with prayer. Father God, we thank you and praise you for giving us your words of life. And Father, we just ask that you... You guide us in working forward, going forth in faith, going forth in trust, and depending upon you when things just go completely downhill. Father, we just ask that you keep our hearts sensitive that we will continue to cry out when we see the things around us. And Father, we just beg for your mercy upon the righteous here in this land and around the world. Father, we, we pray that you come quickly. But Father, we just pray for, pray for your healing and your living water to go out to make fresh all of the stagnant water in the world. Father, we thank you for all this in the name of your Son, Yeshua. Amen. You've been listening to a discussion at Hallel Fellowship. If you would like to hear more discussions or if you have any questions, visit the website at Hallel.info. That's H-A-L-L-E-L dot I-N-F-O. Hallel.info. Hallel.info.